0: with Dr. Paul Gizek. Paul is a neuroscientist and professor at the University of Montreal where his lab studies sensory motor integration and decision making in non-human primates as well as humans and he thinks a lot about you know decision making, perception cognition, all of these things you know what the brain is doing and how and why it's doing it the way that it does it, and he thinks a lot about evolution. So he contextualizes his neuroscientific work inside a framework of evolutionary thinking, thinking about how the brain evolved over time, how its structures you know, came to be and were built on top of the things that came before in evolutionary history. And so we spent a lot of time talking about the evolutionary history of brains and nervous systems. We talked about what the earliest nervous systems look like and some of the most primitive organisms that had nervous systems hundreds of millions of years ago. We talked about how the nervous system changed and became, you know, what we're familiar with today over evolutionary time, how different structures like the hypothalamus and the spinal cord and the cortex and all these things came into the picture over the course of evolution and how all these things work. And we spent quite a bit of time talking about things like a behavior you know, escape behaviors, getting away from threats and predators, foraging behaviors, finding food and nutrients in the environment, how all of these things connect with the ability of an animal to control its state. Thinking about the brain as a fancy mechanism for state control rather than as a way for organisms to represent the external world in, in the way that people often think about it. And so we talked a lot about things like perception and attention and decision-making. You know, What do these things mean? Is there really a difference? What is the difference between sensation and perception and cognition? Uh, does the brain do each of these things one at a time and pass information you know, between sensation parts of the brain and perception parts of the brain and cognition parts of the brain and then to the motor systems to execute behavior, or does the brain work in a different way? Are all of these things sort of intermingled and happening in parallel with one another? So if you're interested in what the brain does and how it does it, if you're interested in how the brain evolved and how the evolutionary context that brain came out of influences how they work. This will be a really interesting episode for you. We talked about how you know a lot of times people think about the brain using concepts that really come from the tradition of psychology and thinking about human mentation rather than thinking about evolution and behavior and coming at it from that angle. If you're interested in perception and and what perception is and why we have perceptions at all, this will be a really interesting episode. It's again grounded in, in evolutionary thinking and behavioral thinking. And Paul is a neuroscientist at times, though, the uh, conversation verged on the philosophical. And so this was a really, really interesting conversation that I had a lot of fun having. I would recommend it to anyone who's interested in the brain, especially people who are you know, aspiring or practicing neuroscientists. I think it's really useful to listen to what Paul has to say and, and really start to think about the brain in evolutionary terms first rather than thinking about it in other ways, You know, using things like computer metaphors, because ultimately everything in biology is evolutionary, nothing in biology. Makes sense except in the light of evolution, as has been famously said in the past. And I think this is just really a really thought provoking and interesting discussion. As always, if you enjoy the content I'm producing, please like, share, and subscribe. Do not forget to check out the links in the episode description, including to mindandmatter.substack.com, and your support is appreciated. And with that, here's my conversation with Dr. Paul Chizak. What your scientific research focuses on?
1: Um, okay, sure. Thanks for inviting me, uh, first of all. Um, so I'm a, I'm a neuroscientist at the University of Montreal. Um, and I study, um, well, decision making, but in the context of sort of sensory motor control. So it's just dis- more decisions about which way to run on a soccer field, and not so much as to whether to play soccer or a different sport, not really the abstract decisions but rather the more sort of concrete moment-to-moment decisions. Um, And I studied that in in animals and humans um, and uh, with experimental work and also a lot of computational modeling. So so I'm I'm actually a computer scientist by background. Um, And then later I got into sort of theoretical neuroscience, mathematical modeling, and then only later came to do experimental work. And and now I sort of combine those, those interests in my in my research day to day
0: i see so you, you do work on primates monkeys and humans
1: yes monkeys and human humans yes um and uh using techniques like neural recordings um uh functional imaging uh well with colleagues uh, as well as many behavioral studies um uh just looking at what decisions people make how do they act and etc um and uh, you, really, the, whatever techniques I, that are available to me that uh, bear upon questions are interesting.
0: So why do you, uh, why do you focus on primates? Why not use uh, other model organisms that give you more tools?
1: Um, well, frankly, it's a bit historical. It's because I started out interested in human cognition and I gradually came to realize that a lot of human cognition... Is, is based on sensory motor control. Um, and, and so I addressed these kinds of questions and the kinds of animals where one addresses these kinds of questions, like like humans and, and primates that are sort of have the sophistication to do these things. But I realize now that, you know, I could have gone about it very differently and, and studied fish and studied salamanders and such, uh, because a lot of the questions I think that I'm addressing are actually relevant for those animals and they're perfectly capable of doing it uh, it, w- w- if we set up the right kind of experiment. So, so it's a bit historical. I sort of, I sort of got into this and sometimes I wonder whether I should go and, and study the amphioxus, which is this really fascinating creature that, that, uh, lives in the water and has a lot of the nervous system that, that we, uh, we have, uh, but it's much simpler, uh, and, and perhaps more accessible to really understand um so yeah it's a bit historical it's because of my tra- my own training and how I've sort of progressed in 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 learning these things.
0: Yeah, well, I I definitely want to talk about the primate brain um but I think we'll get there later in the discussion. One of the one of the things that distinguishes you from many systems neuroscientists neuroscientists who think about things in a computational way who think about how the brain works in a, a fully intact behaving animal is you have a lot of um Phylogenetic and and evolutionary knowledge and you sort of use an evolutionary lens to think about what the brain is doing based on how it evolved and and where it came from basically and so i'm actually hoping we can start with a discussion you know about maybe you could describe some of the earliest nervous systems that we know about and what they looked like and how they worked and what they were actually doing for some of those early early er organisms long long time ago
1: um sure so uh, so i um I've sort of been exposed to ideas um, that suggest that essentially behavior, um, what we think about, when we think about behavior, we think about usually our own behavior and relatively complex behavior um, where there's a lot of pre-planning, et cetera. But uh, a number of people for really over a hundred years have been uh, suggesting that we should really look at behavior as a kind of extension of metabolic control, basic physiological control that all living animals uh, engage in. Um, that essentially is about maintaining your um, internal state in a desirable state where you have the nutrients you need and you're not, you know, your temperature is correct, and you're not being eaten. Um, um, and behavior is an aspect of that. It's just that an aspect that rather than employing uh, machinery within the body extends out into the environment, at least briefly. Um, and so, for example, um, if to, to control certain nutrients or certain compounds within a cell, um, there's certain chemical pathways that can do that, uh, like the Krebs cycle and other kinds of physiological pathways. But to control your nutrient state, you could also just move around in the world. Like if you're in a place where there isn't a lot of some nutrient that you need, well, just move around, swim around randomly, and you'll find yourself, you're likely to find yourself in a place where there's more of whatever it is that you need. And so the, the idea of uh, acting so as to influence your state is kind of a, a fundamental feature of all living organization. And And everybody who studies physiology know, knows this and talks about this this way. And many animal any, maybe we'll study animals. um Think this way, psychologists tend not to because the that kind of feedback loop of behavior is is kind of hard to see in human behavior. But it's likewise like the things that I do ultimately are ways of dealing with maintaining my state in a good, a desirable state. You know, I'm well fed, not threatened, um, etc. And and so many of the things we do they may be very convoluted and very long term, but in the end, it's all about that. So. So in that sense, I would say even before nervous system, there is a fundamental kind of um, architecture, this kind of feedback control architecture that is the basis of behavior and physiology. And so the nervous systems are an elaboration of that second type of control, the one that extends out into the world. Um, although of course much of the nervous system is also about internal physiological control um so you know the the whole endocrine system the enteric nervous system these are more internally um, uh, concerned uh, but our nervous system and you know much of the nervous system expanding sort of out in through the environment uh, becomes very complicated and very sophisticated and convoluted because the environment is so sophisticated and convoluted so in in a sense nervous systems that's what they fundamentally do i think they exert um control and and the first neurons are actually a specialization of of skin of, of the epithelium um to to sort of uh maintain certain um certain integrity, for example, of the membrane. Um, if you come in contact with something, you wanna withdraw from it. Uh, even single cell organisms do this. Uh, but the nervous systems of larger multicellular organisms help to do this in a more coordinated fashion. So this er- these early neural nets of early multicellular organisms were specializations of the external layer that did some of this kind of behavioral uh, control. Um, and one one would be tempted to call it stimulus response, but in a sense it's really it's really a a control of state. It's maintaining the state against external um, perturbations and such
0: I see so so we can think of behavior as really being um. The same thing as metabolic control. It's it's a it's a way of controlling the internal states ultimately of, of the inside of an organism's cells. So even, you know, if we think of a mostly immobile single-celled organism that can't really move, it can sort of just uh float around in whatever soup it lives in, it still has to, you know, get rid of waste and ingest nutrients and do the, the classic metabolic stuff that we think about when we think about cells. And then we can imagine, you know, there's bacteria and, and little. Motile single-celled organisms that have organs like flagella, and they can literally okay. sort of swim around, and, and they're basically following concentration gradients. But again, it's it's for the purpose of uh, for doing metabolism, for keeping their metabolic. Yeah, in state. fact,
1: like if you imagine if you imagine a f- sort of a freely floating organism of some sort that doesn't have much of a even effector system, it could just inflate slightly and it'll go up, right? And in, in water, it'll deflate and go down. I mean, there's certain control policies that one can do without much of a nervous system or muscles or anything um so and yes i i think that's it i mean it's more complicated now of course because there's other things that we do than just metabolism and there's also reproduction and and, and defense and such um but yes i i think fundamentally uh, fundamentally that's what it's all really about and then everything else is on top of that and and i think to me um, the, the point is really well made by the title of William Power's book in the 1970s, 1973, uh, entitled Behavior, the Control of Perception. Um, and what he essentially said is that's what behavior is about. It's not about responding to the world. It's about um, controlling your state in the world. And perception is your way of evaluating your state, and action is your way of influencing that state through the world by taking advantage of certain predictable contingencies between what you do and what happens to your state. Um, and so it's it's sort of complementing the environment so that the entire system that you are um, it maintains itself and, and is, again far from danger and satisfied uh, in terms of nutrients and it achieves the things it needs.
0: Mm-hmm. And so some of the earliest nervous systems, you know, before there were actually brains, we had these sort of uh, organisms, had these neural nets that were more diffuse, I guess you could say. Yeah. And the first neurons you said were you know, actually derived from skin cells. So the nervous system is sort of starting literally at the interface between the organism and the environment. And yeah, exactly. you know, sort of with that in the back of our minds, when we think about the most basic, most fundamental behaviors, if, if behavior is about controlling perception and it's about state control, um, the first neurons are literally at the interface between the inside of the organism and the external environment. What are what are the most primitive or, or basic behaviors? Should we should we be thinking about feeding and foraging when we um, think about the, the earliest behaviors?
1: That would be that would be a big part of it, I think. Um, uh, you know, the temperature regulation and and sort of you know osmolarity regulation those those were part of it too, and, and they still are, of course. Um, one thing I, I'd, I'd want to add though is that you know when when we say neurons appeared as as, as a specialization, I I, I um, originally it wasn't so much neurons. Per se, it was more that the exterior cells had certain kinds of receptors uh, that would let's say uh, open when there was deformation of the membrane, allowing calcium in. Um, and the the cellular response to that would be to contract the other end of the neuron the of the, of the cell, right? So it really had a, both a sensory and a motor role. Um, and these sort of pluripotent cells sort of were among the, the epithelial cells, um, and they, they had this kind of simple sort of withdrawal reflex-like function. Uh, but then later, some of them specialized to be really um, you know, focus on the sensory and others on the contractile. And then finally, some of them uh, uh, just took care of the signaling between the two, right? So if you have cells that are specialized for sensation, others that are specialized for contraction, um, with some, a channel between them or some contact between them, um, eventually, um, apparent, apparently, this is, I'm just t- saying what what I've read from other people, um, the, the sensory ones specialized further into ones that are just sensory and others that are just sort of signaling. And those signaling ones then were useful because they could signal to many, many um, parts of the body at once and coordinate behavior. And that eventually became that neural net. Uh, that that's still diffuse, and so so the, the very distinction between perception and action here is actually emerges out of this this control function. And so you know when I say the title of that book, uh, behavior to control of perception, um, perception there is in a very general sense. It's not nothing like conscious perception. It's nothing like representation of the world. It's just some kind of some kind of state control. Uh, I think fundamentally that's what what uh, Powers and others. We're getting at. But again, these ideas are much older than that. Uh, John Dewey uh, wrote about this 120 years ago, and, and I'm sure others have said this even earlier.
0: So, uh, you know, one of the things that that you wrote about is, you know, what the fundamental purpose of the nervous system is, and and you know that's basically what we we just started to talk about. But you wrote in one of your papers that the fundamental function of the brain is not to build knowledge about the world, but rather to complement and counteract the dynamics of the world, such that the entire organism-environment system stays within desirable states and away from undesirable ones. So, can you just elaborate on that a little bit more, and maybe? contrast it with other ways that people often think about the fundamental purpose of nervous systems
1: well I would say that I would say that that's essentially uh, that that phrase is essentially my my way to, to say what what powers and Dewey and Ashby and and Piaget uh, a psychologist said you know many years before I was born Um Now, within the context of that complementing, the the aspect of, you know, how do you complement the environment? How do you establish that kind of control? Well, you have to take advantage of certain regularities in the environment, certain reliable sort of contingencies that, for example, if you find yourself where there is not a lot of a nutrient, well, then movement, even random movement, is likely to be helpful because the distribution is such that there's probably more elsewhere. Um, So there's certain sort of laws of, of nutrient distribution or physics that that need to be there in the environment in order for the organism to find that um, that control policy, um, and then, but that's not to say, of course, that brains don't build knowledge because along the way to 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 find and then to use that control policy, uh, knowledge of the world will be useful in many cases. It's just not the origins of it, right? It's not the it's not where it began. Where it begins, it's not the foundation on which it's built. It's built on a foundation of feedback control. Again, as many people have said, and then things like, um, you know, knowledge about the world, um, abstract thinking, and, and such. That's built on top of that, and it never—it's never free of that. It's always within that context. But it, it still has all of those sophisticated properties. I mean, there is—we do. You know, we do learn languages that uh, convey information in ways that are very indirect. Um, and we, we, we do learn things that are very much disconnected from day-to-day activity. Um, but ultimately, all that stuff is built within this context of, of control systems. Uh, and, and again, the, the thing is, when we study humans, it it's, might be difficult to to appreciate that control. Uh, But again, um, that's, that's pretty sophisticated. That's, that's many layers of of hierarchical control systems um, away from those really simple animals that just, you know, swim around and get nutrients. Uh, And so, yeah, you mentioned foraging. Yeah. That's, that's part of it. Um, You know, how do you, how do you uh, find yourself in a, in a good place? So filter feeders um, do this by sort of, floating around, um, again, rising in the water column or falling in the water column, depending on the time of day, uh, because that has certain, um, you know, certain consequences of how much nutrient you'll find. Um, So that's a very simple kind of control that, that many animals do without much of a nervous system.
0: And so, you know, when we think about the earliest nervous systems, so first of all, just to help orient people on time, you know, when did the, nerv- the earliest nervous systems evolve? And so as we progress from that uh, period of time to say the period where centralized brains started to evolve, what were some of the behavioral innovations that were going along with the centralization of the nervous system?
1: Um. So my understanding is is that nervous systems appeared after we diverged from sponges um so that's about seven hundred million years ago um uh but there's a lot of um of course ambiguity in trying to nail down the exact date um uh you know um, um so so it's it's likely that that is um that is when. Uh, nervous systems filled first, uh, neurons first appeared before a long, still be, long before a brain. Um, and then brains appeared, actually like a centralized brain appeared uh, an, a couple of separate times along various lineages along that pathway, um, where the vertebrate brain, the chordate brains are one example. But there are other examples among mollusks, among um, arthropods et etc where where you can say there 's a centralized brain of some sort, uh, but that that was independent essentially now there's also a very fascinating debate going on these days about comb jellies i don 't know if you 're familiar with comb jellies, but they 're amazing creatures um, i mean just look at them and and you 'll see why they' they're they look like an alien um spaceship with, from somebody with a really good imagination. Um, there are these amazing things. They look like jellyfish, and they have neurons. Um, they have nervous systems, but they're very strange nervous systems. And one, um, one idea that's, that's become prominent in, in recent years, uh, it's debated highly, is that they develop their neurons completely independently, that they actually split off from our lineage before the sponges. And so, before anybody had neurons, and they came up with a nervous system on their own—a separate nervous system, like again, like an alien being, except you know here on Earth. Um, And there's some good evidence for that. It's highly debated, however. I don't know where. I don't know. I don't know what the what the reality is. But it is possible um, that nervous systems actually evolved twice: once in comb jellies, and once in sort of the eumetazoan. or rather, bilateral um, uh, branch of, of life. Uh, sorry, not bilateral. I, I should say, eumetazoa, including including jellyfish and bil- bilateral animals like us, which appear to have uh, inherited a common uh, nervous system. Anyway, so that's that's an interesting side bit for those who are interested in really early animals. There's a there's a uh, fascinating series of studies uh, debating this issue. Um, but then the actual centralized brains, again, they they appear a number of times, rather sparsely, actually. There's a lot of animals, a lot of branches that don't have centralized brains. Um, but on our lineage, the, the lineage that eventually produced humans, um, it happened in um, chordates, um at least in chordates, uh, probably a, about six hundred and fifty, maybe maybe close to seven hundred million years ago, um, and uh, and had a particular, again, a particular sort of genetic um, uh, origins.
0: And when we think about those early chordates, so primitive organisms that are in the branch of the evolutionary tree that eventually gives rise to us and and other animals mm-hmm. when we think about what they were doing and we think about their brains what did their brains start to have what innovations evolved that earlier nervous systems didn't have and what things did they lack that we are familiar with with you know our brains and and mammals and animals walking around today um
1: well th- One thing that um, seems to have happened is a a notochord, which creates sort of a kind of like a spinal cord, essentially a a tube structure. Um, So um, one one proposal is that uh, early bilaterian animals along our branch had a kind of a plate on the top surface of the body of neurons that somewhere along the line folded into a tube. Um, and it's unclear when that happened exactly. Um, jelly, uh, Starfish actually have something like this, um, but it's unclear um, whether that's their own invention or, or such. Um, uh, it is clear that by the time you get to uh, a branch called cephalochordates, um, that a lot of that structure was set in place. So cephalochordates um, is a branch that, split off from us about 650 million years ago, I think. Um, And that includes this creature called the Amphioxus that I mentioned later, earlier, uh, which is remarkable in in having a lot of the structure you will find in vertebrates. And so it has things like a spinal cord. It has a single eye patch that isn't, it's not eyes, but it's probably homologous to our eyes. Uh, But at that time, it was just a single patch of cells, photosensitive cells, uh, to, that projected uh, downstream to uh, the hypoth- what is a hypothalamus-like thing—and as well as something that's a bit like what's called the tectum in vertebrates or the superior colliculus in uh, mammals. Um, and uh, it it appears that those structures were there uh, in these very early animals, but not really. The telencephalon. So the telencephalon includes things like the cerebral cortex, hippocampus, basal ganglia, a lot of the structures that become really prominent in mammals um, and many vertebrates. The the cephalochordate doesn't seem to have it, although there was a study a couple of years ago that suggested some of the cellular precursors are, are actually there, and they're where you'd expect them to be if there was something in our common ancestor that eventually sort of mushroomed out. And and here's actually, I think a a very interesting fact that I learned when I read this stuff is that this telencephalon, which again, includes cerebral cortex, hippocampus, basal ganglia, et cetera. It actually is is just an outgrowth of part of the hypothalamus. So the hypothalamus was there. It was one of the earliest structures. In fact, Thurston Locali, who studied the amphioxus a lot, described them often as, it's a hypothalamus attached to a spinal cord. Um, And again, the hypothalamus even today is this sort of major source of metabolic control, right? uh, Through endocrine secretions. And and again, these creatures had a lot of these these systems. Um, But then it just has a a kind of a downstream projection to the spinal cord, which deals with the outside world. And at some point it developed better control of that, that out control of the sort of interaction with the outside world through structures like the tectum, and then later, the telencephalon. Um, but it, fundamentally, again, that hypothalamic controller was sort of the first, um, it's really the first recognizable structure that we, we see in these animals um, uh, in, in evolution that, we, that that seems to have been there pretty much uh, almost as soon as neurons. Um, or a centralized brain, certainly. By the time of a centralized brain, I think that would be it. Um, so again, and then again, and that's the, again the top level control, um, maintaining fundamental physiological variables and desirable ranges.
0: Yeah, and so can you talk about the, the hypothalamus a little bit more? Um, you're, you already hinted at some of you know what it's doing and how it's different from you know other parts of the brain that we'll talk about that do that are often said to do, you know, fancier things basically, but, you know, it has a lot of endocrine controls built into it. It's using and sensing a lot of different hormones and things like this. Can you just talk about some of the basic control mechanisms that even those early hypothalamic structures were engaged in? Um, So a lot of it was uh,
1: like um, circadian rhythms um, already, Uh, you know, there, there are parts of the hypothalamus. By the way, the retina apparently is also part, an outgrowth of the hypothalamus, as well as the pineal gland, which was the sort of original circadian rhythm uh, detector. Um, uh, but mind you, I am not an expert in hypothalamus, so the best I can do is tell you what I think I understand from the people who are experts. Um, and and so the one um, one person's work that I found sort of useful for understanding the evolution of these things is Detlev Arend in Germany, who suggests that the original nervous systems had this kind of um, two parts, a, um, an, a what he calls the apical nervous system, which was really about endocrine control, but also uh, chemical sensation and photosensation and, and et cetera. And what he calls the blastoporal nervous system. And that um, which was more synaptic and sensory motor control. Um, and then the the two of these things kind of partially merge, and where they merge is what you, where you get the hypothalamus, and and where they don't merge, uh, the remaining of the sort of blastoporal system becomes much of the rest of the nervous system. So essentially, what they're suggesting is is, and it's not, it's not just them, but others as well, um, is that there's a kind of a controller there that does the endocrine control, which is a lot of it is internal physiological, um, as well as some kind of sensory motor control through the environment via in this this stage, this mostly just the spinal cord. Um, But then, um, but also, you know, kind of the interaction between the two, like uh, the control of circadian rhythms is not just control of um, whether you're going to sort of um, be very active or not very active, but also what kind of things you may want to, um, you know, what kind of interactions you may want to prioritize. Um, and so one proposal, this, this I get from reading Thomas Hills and others, is that um, one of the things about foraging is there's the world near you and then there's the world far away. And they're very... They're kind of different, right? The, the thing that's near you is the kind of thing that you can ingest by just like sucking in water. Um, and so that's local behavior. Uh, and when things are good, when you're in a good state in the world, within your environment, you're in a good uh, neighborhood, say, um, then you kind of want to stay there. You kind of want to stay local. Um, but if the the local environment becomes depleted, maybe because you've sucked up all the good nutrients, or maybe not that great to start with, then you want to go somewhere else, you want to move more uh, large area, you want to cover a larger area. And Hills and others suggest that this was the original role of the neurotransmitter dopamine, which, um, as as you probably know, is highly implicated in a lot of very important reward-related processing, reinforcement learning, et cetera. But they suggest that the original role was not in learning so much, but just regulating. When things are good, keep doing what you're doing and stay where you are. When things are not so good, when the levels of dopamine drop, that's a signal saying things are not so good, go somewhere out there. Go out there and explore a little bit. Try to find a better place. Um, and, again, that is a role of fairly sort of hypothalamic um, – very ancient systems that are hypothalamic. Now, dopamine has taken on many other roles since then, uh, but again, within that context. Um, so so again, that is still, you know, and I still think that in the end, uh, the, you know, the top of the brain hierarchically is the hypothalamus, right? I mean, uh, you know, if you, you can engage in all kinds of sophisticated cognitive speculation, but in the end, if you're hungry or, or, or there's a fire, um, you know, you're going to deal with that first, right? Uh, and so, so it, again, I think you know you can sort of say that there's a part of the hypothalamus that's doing a lot of this fundamental keeping you alive, uh, and there's a part of it that specializes for keeping you alive through the world, essentially by dealing with what's out there.
0: Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit ab- more about? So when we use this word "state," the current state of of an organism. You know how are structures like the hypothalamus actually what is the state what are the things that define the state in terms of what the hypothalamus is is detecting and and you know naturally when you just if you just start talking about these things at all other concepts very naturally emerge. Um, so for example you know if if I sort of summarize what you were just saying, you know, very basic aspects of behavior include you know, sensing the nutrient content of your environment. You know, maybe, you know, I've got cells in my body that are sensing that, you know, sugar's too low or something is too low and we need to replenish it. Then you obviously want to detect if those things are present outside of the body so that you can get them inside of the body to change uh, the state of the nutrient composition inside your cells so that you can Uh maintain, uh, stay alive and maintain homeostasis. And you know, very naturally, when you deplete these nutrients from the environment by ingesting them, you have to detect that those nutrients are no longer there. Obviously, when they're there, it's good in the sense that you have something to suck in to replenish uh, what's inside your body. When they're depleted, that's bad. Maybe it starts sending signals uh, somehow to say go somewhere else. And you know, very naturally, when you just sort of think about these very basic things, the metabolic state of the animal coupled to the environment via its sensory. Apparatuses, uh, you know, naturally leads you to talk about things being good or bad, or behavior being motivated or unmotivated. So, how do we think about state and and start to connect those concepts together?
1: Well, I think that that's that's about right. I mean, there's certain, you know, state is just a word that we use for all the variables that an animal needs to deal with, um, and what their setting, current setting is, and and some of them can be in a very wide range. Some of them have to be in a very specific range, Um, and the the challenge is to stay within those desirable regions of that multidimensional state space. Um, But yes, to do that, um, you want to, you can be a little bit more sophisticated and just say, oh, my, my stomach is grumbling. Um, You know, you can, again, you can use chemical sensation, for example, to, to, to tell what's out there, you know, what is what, you know, if I were to go out there and, 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 Uh, ingest would it be good is there anything there worth ingesting um with vision of course same thing um if you're you know some kind of a visually guided uh forager um then certain visual cues um tell you that you're oriented towards food go start swimming forward um and open up your mouth or something uh um and so there is a um you know the dopamine example is actually kind of an example for it because the dopamine is not so much your your internal state as much as your intake rate at least according to some um hypothesis so if you if if it's the rate at which you're intaking nutrients is good then you should keep doing it if you're assuming you actually are hungry um which is not other hormones that will tell you that um so essentially it's if things are if, if things are going well, continue doing what you're doing. If things are not going well, seek another place, uh, explore a little bit, et cetera. Um, now, one of the things that I think I've um, I've sort of neglected in, in the way I've described this this stuff is j- uh, just how fundamental predictive control is. Um, so you know, you can think about the animal detects that its state is suddenly, uh, depleted and now it's time to go and find food or um you know there's it's it's getting cold. Um you need to find a warmer place. Um in fact animals can do better than that. Even very simple single cellular animals do a lot of predictive control. And so they can essentially anticipate needs before they actually happen to be needs, because there are very um predictable contingencies out in the world. Um, you know, when you when you drink a glass of water, you feel satisfied long before it could possibly affect your 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 bloodstream, right uh, simply because it's it's reliable. it's you know it's a no-brainer, right that that ingesting food will satisfy hunger, drinking water will satisfy thirst, et cetera. So a lot of this stuff is is actually predictive and and um, uh, um, Sterling and Lachlan, describe this as allostasis um, the idea that it's not homeostasis it's not just responding to perturbations and maintaining a controlled state but rather allostasis which is predictive anticipating changes in state etc and and you can see how that's particularly uh, powerful once you have a nervous system with sensors that can look out in the world you can you can see a fruit and you know seeing the fruit, doesn't satisfy your hunger, but it tells you what you need to do to satisfy the hunger, and so and so on. And um, and I think uh, you know Lisa Feldman Barrett's work really ties that in very nicely to actually what goes on in the nervous system when you when you do these kinds of things and when you deal with these kinds of things. So, but yes, I think this is really what you said. It's motivation for action. This is where the purpose of behavior really comes in it's is that it actually behavior actually accomplishes these things that are important
0: And so when we think about sort of nervous systems becoming more elaborate and increasing in complexity um, as we go forward in evolutionary time and, and new organisms are evolving you know one of the fundamental things that I suspect you'll talk about here is you know as an organism becomes more, mobile, more able to move through its environment, it's naturally going to encounter a greater diversity of environments, right? So we can imagine very simple organisms and they're just basically floating around in soup. And we can imagine, you know, organisms that can kind of you know, uh, swim with a little tail structure or something into new types of environments that the other organism will never find itself in. And then eventually, obviously, we get animals in the sort of traditional sense where, you know, they have appendages or fins or whatever, and they can travel quite large distances. And so, naturally, the longer you can travel, the further you can travel, um, the more diversity of environments you will encounter and the more diverse environments you encounter will then naturally require you to have more and more refined uh, sensation abilities so that you can actually parse what's out in that more diverse set of environments. And so you you need that if you're going to have the mobility to actually put yourself in those new environments. And so as we think about some of the earliest chordates and more primitive organisms that sort of just had a hypothalamus and some other, what we'd call more primitive sensory elaborations, as time proceeds evolutionarily, and we start getting uh, structures that other people, uh, people will have heard of, you know, basal ganglia, hippocampus, cortex, what's going on in terms of the behavioral innovations and why those structures were necessitated, why those structures needed to evolve and what precisely they're doing with respect to motor control and uh, more and more refined sensory abilities?
1: Um, so I think one,
0: one concept
1: which is really useful here is, is the idea of affordances, which comes from James Gibson, who was a perceptual psychologist in the 70s. Um, And the idea is that the world um, contains opportunities for action for particular organisms. So for example, a tree branch is a place of support for a bird, um, uh, but not for me. I mean, it's a really thick branch and it's not too high off the ground. Um, You know, a small hole is shelter for a mouse. Uh, but it could be a source of food for a cat. Um, And so the point is that there are certain things that if an animal is capable of certain abilities, motor abilities, then there are certain things in the world that just are opportunities to to do stuff. Um, Now, that's true for very simple animals. Um, uh, Fish, for example, uh, certain coral formations, maybe a shelter for a small fish, and a source of food for a big fish. Um, you know, the, the, these, um, the idea that affordances exist, um, but are specific to an animal is important because you can now see how um, very, very simple animals did not have affordances for sophisticated interaction because they simply didn't have the sensory motor machinery to actually make use of it. Um but as the sensory motor machinery expands in its sophistication a little bit, it makes it sort of um, enables certain kinds of interactions and therefore discovers those sort of affordances in, in the sense of a a reliable consequence of taking a certain interaction. Um, so for example, very simple organisms may have interacted with, so when you say as animals get more mobile, they encounter more complex worlds. I think you meant kind of that rather than, um, you know, simple animals sort of stumble into because a simple animal can get stumble into a complex world and, and get eaten in seconds. Right. That's not the point. I think the point is that as simple animals get more sophisticated, they discover the complex additional complexities of the world. So there's, the, another concept that's useful here is Umwelt, which is uh, early Ethologist suggested, von Exku suggested that um, animals live within a certain kind of a world of, of, of what's meaningful to them, what's relevant to them. And it's very different for a fish as for a bird, as for a mammal, on um, terrestrial mammal. Um, and it's it's related. It's the idea that there's a certain set of interactions that are possible for that animal in that particular world. And that is what they use to um to exert control over their state and the environment. Again, the mouse will run into the hole when threatened because it affords shelter um, as long as it's not too small and not so big that the cat can get in. Right. And so animals sort of need to discover the affordances that are relevant for their, the kinds of interactions of which they're capable. And I think what happens in evolution is um, this is kind of a a gradual process. Sort of, um, sort of symbiotic expansion. The the nervous system gets more sophisticated, permitting the exploitation of more uh, um, abstract or, or or more advanced or a wider variety of affordances, which then supports that and allows more sophisticated things still. So you know, animals can run up a tree um, and discover a whole world of opportunities uh, if they're, if they have the right nervous system to, to take advantage of. Them. And so I think that's essentially what happens in evolution is it's this sort of gradual extension um, of the sort of closed loop control further and further into more complex world and to take advantage of things. You know um, you and I perceive a bicycle um, in a, in a way that, because we know how to ride a bicycle, um, but that's not animals that don't have the, the the geometry and the motor skills. They don't. It's it isn't that affordance isn't there for them. I uh, so I think this concept is is really really fundamental um, from very early animals, and it still continues to be fundamental now.
0: I see. So just to riff on that with a super simplistic example, uh, we'll, we'll use the tree example. You know, as as an organism evolves and it becomes uh, able to move its body so it can get into a new type of environment. Um, essentially, it's now in a new niche. There's a new world of possibility that the animal's not particularly well adapted to, to uh, exploit. It, in fact, it might not even be uh, well adapted to detect what's in the environment to exploit. But as soon as it starts to get into some kind of new environment, some new evolutionary niche, now you have the ability for uh, selective pressure come into the mix such that its nervous system can learn how to parse that environment on the sensory side, learn how to move through that new environment on the motor side. And then that's going to provide selective uh, pressure for new innovations to evolve. And this process just can happen over and over and over over again um, as animals just expand into more and more environments.
1: Yeah. And I think one thing that needs to be appreciated is is just how many fail, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So when animals got out on land, part of the Part of the advantage of getting out on land is you're getting out of the water, which was teeming with all kinds of predators. But you get out on land, there's all kinds of new challenges now. And and major innovations have to be uh, developed in order to overcome those challenges. And and the fact is, you know, many, many species just didn't make it, right? We see only the ones that that survived. And it, so it looks like, wow, they adapted. They, they said, huh, we need to have... Uh, you know we need to breathe air well let's develop some lungs we need to um enlarge our vision let's develop bigger eyes but but the fact is that's just the ones that um that didn't succumb to the selection pressure that that killed off all of the others um and so so again it's it it's it's yeah it's like pushing the edges pushing yourself into a new niche and then um you know, exploring in all kinds of ways, many of them failures, uh, but some of them happening, happening to stumbled on on ways of dealing with that new niche, and now opening up a whole new world of opportunities. In fact, if you look at sort of the the sort of um, progression of of evolution, you you have dramatic periods of of innovation at, at certain times, and it's often uh, it's often you know, it's often kind of simple, you know. A meteor fell and knocked out all large predators, including all dinosaurs. That creates a lot of opportunities now for mammals to fill those niches. But some of it is is harder to tell. You know, sometimes things happen simply because a new predator entered the the environment um, or or uh, you know, or climate changed and and so um, major innovations happen. Um, you know there's there's examples of this throughout uh, evolutionary history. Um, and again, I think so I think the animals are doing this all the time. They're always sort of exploring the edges of their niche and and slipping into new niches from time to time um and again, I think it's kind of a symbiotic thing where the nervous system and the behavior and the opportunities kind of have to be approached all at once um, yeah, you, I know, talk- you get larger, there's certain things that become possible for you
0: mm-hmm. uh. Um, you know, one of the things I want to talk about too on, um, you know, we've talked about foraging and feeding behavior, um, but another very fundamental behavior that we've only just briefly touched on is um, defensive behaviors on the one hand and, and escape behaviors, say, from predators on the other hand. So even even before uh, the animals we normally think about every day evolved, before there were mammals, before there were dinosaurs and stuff, um, you had more primitive organisms and they still had to... Um, follow concentration gradients to find you know, where the nutrients were in the environment, and they still had to uh, avoid predators. And I'm hoping you can talk a little bit about escape and predator avoidance in some of the early chordates maybe, um, and how that helps us think about or sets the stage for helping us think about more complex behaviors. So for example, you know, even a very, very simple animal that has the ability to swim through the water, even if it doesn't really have eyeballs in the way that we have eyeballs, even if it doesn't have what we would call the most sophisticated nervous system, it still has to sense danger on one side of its body and then move in the opposite direction. So, when we start, before we start talking about things like spatial navigation and cognition and all that, how do some of these early primitive escape behaviors start to set the stage for how some of those more complex uh, forms of mobility?
1: Well, um, so one of one of these major periods of innovation uh, was the Cambrian explosion, and one proposal is that the reason for the Cambrian explosion was uh, predation. That um, you essentially animals, mobile animals, a, a number of them stumbled onto the benefits of becoming predators. So jellyfish had been predators already before then or things like jellyfish, but are sometime around the Cambrian, um, arthropods or certain mollusks and, 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 such. It's unclear exactly what they were, but there were some large predators that appear in the fossil record. Um, and that puts a lot of pressure on everybody else. Right. Um, and at, perhaps around that time, uh, you get, um, well, you get a lot of innovation in, in the vertebrates. So the cephalochord, it's already had an escape reaction um, that, again, with that single eye patch, essentially just if a shadow falls on you, swim like crazy or or hide in the ground, hide in the sand, even better, right? Um, and that's a very simple policy that that deals with lots of situations. And And again, it may be completely benign, but better be safe than sorry. So you don't have to be too sophisticated. Um, but in invertebrates, what happens is that the eye patch split into two that migrated to the sides of the head. So now you can have a differential shadow and now you can swim away from the shadow. You can now orient yourself away from the shadow. And one, one proposal is that because the projections from the eyes cross in the brain, uh, when they get to the midbrain, the tectum, they cross, And then from then, downstream into the spinal cord, they don't cross um, in the escape system. Um, Now, I didn't know this when I was studying neuroscience first. I thought things cross on the input and then cross again on the output. And that's true for many systems. But for the escape system, it actually doesn't cross. So now what you have is a system that if you have a stronger stimulus on one side, it's going to cause more contraction on the other side, and so you'll turn away from that stimulus at least initially, and then you just swim like hell. But because you 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 orient yourself away from the stimulus, it gives you that extra edge to to get away from that predator. Now, of course, the predators are getting better at it too, um, and they actually have the, uh, so so the approach is, so the, that's the that's the avoidance system. The approach system actually is double crossed again. And so now, a stronger stimulus on one side will have you turn towards it. So if, if, you're, if you recognize prey, you use that. If you recognize threat, you use the escape system. And this is something that's been documented very well in lamprey um, and fish and birds, and mammals, you name it. Uh, so these systems exist in all vertebrates, probably through common descent from our common ancestor with lamprey, which was about 550 million years ago. A Cambrian explosion time. Um, so again, so that's a very simple uh, mechanism. It's not. It's not navigation. It's not really knowledge about the world. It's. It's really relatively simple. Um, uh, you know, reflex-like interaction to again avoid, avoid a state of uh, of threat essentially. Mm-hmm.
0: And so, how do we start to think about the transition from? mostly or purely reflexive behaviors that can be very simple in the ways that you just described, you know, detect one type of stimulus at one side of the body, and then simply execute an escape behavior or some other very stereotyped behavior. How do we start to think about the emergence of structures in the brain that have much more refined capabilities? And that start when we start to use words like representation, for example, you know, how do we start to think about this?
1: Well, first of all, um the reflex that I'm describing is actually not, again, not the start of of behavior so much, but but rather a a necessary step that becomes particularly necessary once you get big predators roaming around. Um the fundamental thing is really the motivated, sort of internally motivated behavior, like, boy, my nutrients are running low, better get out there and and, and forage. Um so so that's really the and that's really why I think what a lot of people think about in terms of goal-directed, motivated behavior as being more sophisticated than reflexive. Um, but again, I think actually that is really the foundation. Reflexive is just a kind of a special case. This kind of escape reflex is kind of a special case that has to become particularly um, sort of fast in kind of stimulus response type scenario simply because being eaten is really bad. Um So, but for more regarding uh, representation now, okay. So now imagine you have these two eye patches that tell you there's more threat on the right, go to the left. Um, You can do better than that. If you actually have your eye patch sort of topographically project downstream so that um, the particular location in in a particular part of external space is now um, conveyed downstream so that you turn away not just from there's more stuff on the right, but exactly where it is, right? It, it actually tells you now turn by this angle in order to orient yourself away from the threat or turn by a different angle, simply by maintaining a topography between the sensor and the downstream and the midbrain um, tectum and then downstream projections to the spinal cord. And so that's, you could, you could if you wanted to, call that a kind of representation of space. It's kind of like a a sensor for threats in particular locations around you. But the distinction between being a sensor versus a motor structure is still not really justified there because it really is a sensory motor control circuit. It's a a dynamical system with coupling between variables that essentially just um, gets the task done, never mind whether it's a representation of the stimulus or a representation of a motor plan, right? Those that debate is not relevant um, at that stage. Um, so I think, you know, you can, you can talk about it. So the, the term representations, as you know, is a real um, problem in the field. Uh, and mostly, I think, because people mean different things by it. Um, uh, what I find useful, and there's, of course, a huge debate. There's camps that believe everything everything the brain does is manipulation of representations, be they symbolic or distributed, and another camp that says no, no, representations are not allowed. We have to talk about um, behaviors, etc. Um, I, 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 I don't. I'm sort of in the middle. Um, I think it's useful maybe to think about them as a kind of a continuum. Um, uh, so, so on the one end, you can imagine representations are purely descriptive, and so it's things like you know, when I write something on a piece of paper, a phrase, that's a representation that describes something uh, only because you know how to read that language, etc. And you have things in your head, it's sort of, it's, it's sort of decodable. um, You know, it's sort of a code that you know how to decode. And so it's useful for me to pass messages to you in this way, right? And that's a Kind of a descriptive representation. I can draw a picture of something. It's not that thing, right? Uh, and so that's the kind of representation that people often talk about. Then there's representations that are pragmatic, like for example, this sort of topographic projections from retina to detect to the spinal cord, right? It's not, it's not about knowledge per se. Um, it's about getting the task done, right? Um, it's getting the escape behavior working well. Um And it doesn't matter whether it's decodable or not, right? It it doesn't matter. Like like you would, it'd be very hard for an external, you know, a scientist to decode specifically how a particular cell along that pathway encodes location and space because it's distributed and it's extremely context dependent, right? It might differ based on the state of the animal. and, uh, and it's not really decodable, and, but it's certainly not decoded by any other part of the brain. Uh, it's just part of a system that accomplishes a goal. It's pragmatic, right? Um, and so I, I, that's a very different kind of representation, right? It's not about conveying knowledge. It's about, it's, it's about co-varying with the world in a way that produces useful behavior. Um, and so I think, but we can still talk about it as a representation, um because really that's very often what people mean so when people in neuroscience you know record in the brain uh, of a mouse or a human and they see activity that co-varies with something they say it's a representation but do they really mean that it's decoded by some other brain region in some way and there's there's a language in which it's expressed or do they really mean that it's that it's just part of a control circuit. I can tell you, in, in the motor in the motor field, people tend to think of it. Well, no, it's 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 downstream activity that that activates muscles. It's not it's not necessarily a decodable trajectory in, in Cartesian space or something. Um, even if we can decode it, that's not really what the brain is doing. Um, so so that's that's how some people talk about representations. Others are really talking about much more like a message passing between modules, uh, you know, little bits of knowledge that are encapsulated some way, c- encoded by the perceptual system then sent over to some cognitive uh, executive that decodes it, does something with it, and then encodes a motor plan and sends it down downstream. That's a different way of thinking about it, right? Now, the, the big question, of course, um, has to do with where we lie along that, that continuum um and i think it's useful to think about it as a continuum because then we can ask the question uh which which i uh, i'm interested in is suppose you have these animals swimming around and running around the world that mostly have pragmatic representations and that's what they need to do ultimately everything in the brain has to serve some purpose or you know or it's a waste um so in the end, you have to do something, even if it's knowledge, right? But how do you go from something which is purely pragmatic to something that's increasingly descriptive, right? The kinds of things that that do seem to exist in more sophisticated behavior and more sophisticated animals, and certainly by the time you get to language and humans or, or human abstract thinking and such, you, those things are quite descriptive. But how do you get from one to the other? And I think you have to have a story of how you get there because you can't just have cognition pop in suddenly um, in in an evolution and just be connected to the, all the other systems perfectly it has to come somehow from from within right from within a a, a an a interacting system um and so for example um just... Br- I, I can go on about this for for hours, but one example is um, symbol grounding. So there's a classic problem in philosophy and and sort of cognitive science about if we communicate, if we think, if the brain works by manipulating representations that are symbolic, but even non-symbolic, how do they? How do we attach meaning to those symbols? So you have a word, dog. How is that attached to the meaning of dog? All the various aspects of that phrase. Um, and that's a tough problem to solve. But there's a, another way of looking at it, um, which, again, comes from things like affordances and sensory motor control, etc. Uh, and Giovanni Pizzullo uh, calls this the symbol detachment problem. So what he suggests is that, um, that you have interacting systems that are essentially pragmatic, what, what I would call pragmatic representation. So there's animals that are interacting with the world, they're making use of affordances, they're, they're, they're engaging in closed loop, interactive control, etc. And the question is, and that's meaningful, because again, it accomplishes those goals, like, like maintaining your state. Um, So there's the meaning is there sort of trivially, um, in the sense that it has purpose for the animal. Then the question is how within the context of these interacting systems, you have part of it specialized to sort of get detached from the moment to moment activity like for example a a thing in the brain that um doesn't just say there's a threat on my right but says hey that's a lion that's a lion and it's charging at me right now strictly speaking to escape the lion you don't need that knowledge but we do actually have that knowledge there is something in the brain that 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 Sort of describes the situation to us, usually long after we've escaped, hopefully. But but the point is that that we are capable of this, and how does it get detached? And and uh, I think that's an interesting question. And I'll um, stop me if I'm going too long, by the way. But there's one example that that I I would give for that and for early animals, um, and that's in navigation. Um, so. If you're not in a um, desirable uh, part of the environment, um, and let's say you can't, you don't have any food around you, then you may want to navigate out around, you may want to swim around and find where there is more food. Um, and as you swim, there's certain um, cues that you have from the environment, olfactory, odor plumes and such, and as well as l- visual landmarks that, you um, are sort of reliably tied into particular feeding sites uh, like, I don't know, some piece of coral where there's, there's some plant that you might want to, uh, that you could eat that provides food for you. Um, and so when you're in that motivated hungry state, you can swim around um, and incorporate in your um, hunger, satisfaction uh, behavior, incorporate these cues Um such as, for example, if these two visual features are uh, located one to the right to the other, then I need to keep swimming until uh, the one they, they they switch, so that I you know the kind of landmarks can kind of triangulate kind of where you are, and that's and that's that's a useful sort of transformation in the world that's pertinent for you to find food when you're hungry, right? And so essentially, the animal could learn. While When it's in this state of being hungry and searching for food, it can learn what are the places in the world that satisfy its hunger. And it's, and it's purely pragmatic. It's not sort of decodable because it's all tied in together. The visual, the olfactory, and the internal state are all mixed up together into this kind of um, system where it's, where it's non-decodable, right? But now if you have such a system that can learn where the food is, it becomes useful to detach the internal state aspect um, from all the other aspects, right? Because um, because those other aspects, like like the, loca- the relative location of landmarks or odor plumes, are still there even when you're not hungry, right? So that means that even if you're not, if if you have the ability to build what's what this is this is what we call a cognitive map um, that you can build a sort of a a, a map of your environment in, and, and sort of tag it with this is where there's some food, here's where there's some shelter, et cetera, um, in the context of particular um, control policies like find the food or find the shelter. But if you can if you can detach that internal um, aspect of it like I'm hungry or I'm threatened, and just focus on the external part, On those external transformations and such, then you can learn that um, cognitive map in general, right? You can learn a more general map, and even when you're even when you're swimming around, just sort of swimming around idly, you're not hungry, you're not threatened, you can still uh, use and and construct that information somehow, and that becomes a kind of knowledge. And so again, you're now detaching, you're detaching sort of the a more descriptive. Thing that is more like knowledge of the world from a purely pragmatic thing that was all about satisfying the need for, you know, feeding yourself, etc. So I I think that might be an example. And it's probably a very old one. Again, early vertebrates probably were capable of doing this kind of um, context, maybe not independent, but more more in indip- the more more detached
0: from the more one detached. context. yeah exactly. so l- let me let me see if i can sort of summarize some of this and and riff on it so if we imagine a, a primitive organism like a lamprey or something okay. um it's got you know primitive sensory abilities in the sense that it's not as sophisticated as us It maybe can't form images the way we can an organism that can just sort of detect light or not light it can detect the presence of a looming shadow it's got muscles. It can move its body and swim around. <clears throat> so if we imagine the escape system of this animal, um, then it's doing something like, you know, if shadow is present, wiggle the body so that we swim in the opposite direction, and that's its escape behavior. It doesn't have anything, uh, that we would call, a. Uh, uh, a rich representation of what the threat is. It's not identifying, you know, that predator versus another predator. It's simply detecting the presence of a looming shadow, which is present right now in this context. And then it's, you know, like a stimulus response reflex, just executing a simple behavior that will reliably move the animal out of harm's way. And that can be a very simple, powerful circuit for a very uh, for a relatively primitive organism to use to promote survival. And I think one thing that you said is important is when we think about. A circuit like that, a set of circuits like that, I think what you were saying is they just need to get the job done. And one thing that that means is that as long as they get the job done and the animal survives and that circuit fulfills that basic escape function, there's nothing necessitating that the way it gets the job done, the way that the information is being encoded, is efficiently in the computational sense decodable by other. Circuits in the brain, yeah, and that all of all of that's very different from some of the things that evolve later, where you want to encode things in a way that is decodable elsewhere, because it starts to allow you for this detachment of the state from the current context, and that allows for more generalization and new types of learning. Is that yes? Uh, is yes. that yes. roughly that, that, what you were saying?
1: That, that's roughly it. And you know, and you, you you can you can think that how much more sophisticated we are than lamprey, but we have that same circuit if a large vehicle moves <laughs> in your peripheral vision, you're going to escape. And it's thanks to your superior colliculus that you're going to do that. And you don't care if it's a Ford truck or a Mack truck, you know, it's a large looming stimulus and you just get the hell out of there. And, and that's, that's you know, that is a fast system. And, um, and you know, it's good that it's there. Um, now, yes, as you say, for other kinds of things especially generalization you don't want to have things that are so in, in so in inextricably tied into a one particular context because then of course by definition won't generalize so i think uh so i think that happens um in many of these systems um but I wonder whether it happens, and, and I don't know what the answer is, but I wonder whether it tends to happen by um, differentiation and specialization. So, in other words, you don't want to mess up the system that gets you, that gives you that fast escape. You don't want to mess with that. Uh, however, if you duplicate it and then, or, or you know, or sort of have a redundant system, uh, then you can keep relying on the old one while Playing around and making the other one more sophisticated. So, so the telencephalon um, did not play a big role in in early chordates. Well, there wasn't much of it apparently in early chordates. But once you get to vertebrates, you get mu- much of the telencephalic structures there, including what appears to be the the um, the ancestral part of the cerebral cortex, sort of the 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 precursor. Um, so, the basal ganglia is there in lamprey. The the pallium, which includes the hippocampus and uh, cerebral cortex in us. Um, These the structures are there and the circuits are, are largely there. Um, but they didn't play so much of an immediate role in, in controlling behavior, which was more done more by this midbrain circuits. Um, but they had a modulatory role. It's kind of like saying... Um, so, sort of like collecting information about the state and prioritizing those those other systems in a more sophisticated way, um, modulating the, the sort of priority between doing one thing versus another thing, but not so much controlling the doing of those things. But gradually, uh, certainly in mammals, uh, it took over much of that role. Um, and that's a whole complicated story, that again can only make i i think it only be make make sense in the in the context of the actual history that we went through becoming nocturnal and then um and then sort of relying on a different different circuits more than uh you know reptiles uh, that uh dominated diurnal life mm-hmm. um so there's certain sort of things that happened along the way that led to um you know these parts of the brain becoming um elaborate, highly elaborate and eventually taking over. But again, we still have, we still have all the, all those escape circuits in there. Um, uh, you know, in some ways more sophisticated. Even,
0: mm-hmm. Yeah. So just to riff on this a little bit more, if we use, uh, you know, the lion example, you know, you can imagine, uh, a simple, a simple version of ourselves that, you know, a lion jumps out of a bush and you run away. Um, if you just have the sort of basic escape circuit, you're sort of just saying, you know, threat is here, get away from it. But as soon as organisms evolve the ability to start encoding different information in different ways and at different timescales, you you have that detachment of the current state from the stimulus. So now I can I can get away from the lion, I can reach safety. My flight or flight uh, state can go away because now I'm safe, and I can I can say, huh. There was this thing that I'm representing as a lion somehow. I'm representing it in the absence of the thing being there. I'm representing it in the absence of me being in the flight or fight state. And what that actually buys me is the ability to avoid going back into that state in the future because now I can think, ah, well, if I go over there, that thing might be there. And I better not do that. Is that you know, am I am I sort of repeating that in an okay way? Yeah.
1: I I think I mean in one very simple sense even with that representing um you know if if you've just been exposed to a threat and you got away from it um you may never may, you may want to continue um being very sensitive to threats um and and don't engage in other activities you know uh, you just escaped from a lion oh and here's a nice uh fruit to eat no well maybe maybe don't eat the fruit just yet maybe s- stay alert a bit you know a, a kind of a, a state of what one might call anxiety right you you you're sort of um predisposed to um to continue escaping in case that predator comes after you or or is still there you know um so i think there's a there's a sort of a um kind of a it doesn't have to be very sophisticated it could be simply like um a, a prolonged change in the modulation uh, of different circuits, uh, you know, again, and, and, and you can imagine this is also physiological, right? The heart rate goes up, the, you know, the, um, you know, pupils dilate, et cetera. I mean, you you, you become very alert, et cetera. Um, uh, you know, that doesn't yet require, you know, a detached representation per se. Um but like in the other example that i gave you may you may nevertheless learn where the lions live you know this 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 hill over there is is kind of off limits because there's danger there and and so you may you may want to um you may you may want to assimilate that particular um scenario to a larger context that becomes that becomes um uh, you know, different policies, you know, other policies, like, yes, okay, there's no lion, there's no threat, and I'm hungry. But still, you don't want to go down over that hill, because again, that's where threats are. Uh, so I think that's, you know, that's part of making behavior more sophisticated. I, I'm not sure it's necessarily decodable yet, though, right? I think this is one of the things. So one of the things that ha- that's going on in neuroscience now is everybody's trying to decode neural activity. And, and we can do it when we control everything like crazy, right? When we control every contextual variable, then we can decode. But um, the problem is it be, it's, they're all mixed. The variables are all, all mixed up there in ways that are hard to make sense of. So even though you and I might say, well, the brain has to represent the location of the target in order to reach for it. Um, well, what it really needs to do is reach the target. And the pragmatic um, circuits along the way will definitely have to co-vary in a uh, in a sort of a lawful way with the location of the target, but they may not be decodable uh, in any straightforward way. Um, and there, and and even if they are, there, there's still this aspect of context, right? Which uh, which is there, and and you know. Um, I think we won't understand the system um, unless we kind of confront that 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 sort of mixed up, context dependent pragmatic uh, way that the brain does that much of the brain activity actually is. Mm-hmm. Um, this is something I think that again, in, in sensory motor control, people sort of confront that a lot because because the system because the, the the questions are so intertwined. If you study purely sensory systems, you can you can get by, I think, without confronting the contextual things. But but again, only only so far. I I think people there are also coming to similar conclusions. Um, and again, I think we have this idea of the brain encoding things and decoding it like a message passing. Because a lot of people sort of come come to it with a kind of a metaphor of a computer. Where you really do have information encoded and decoded, but um, there's there's not that much in the brain. I think that that uh, works that way.
0: Yeah, I mean, I certainly remember, uh, you know, when I was doing neuroscience, and many, many, many people have had the experience where you know you set up an experiment, you record from some neurons, and um, you know you you're trying to understand you're trying to decode what the neurons are doing. There's this sort of expectation sort of baked in and and often just sort of brought in as an assumption that everything should be decodable. But what you're saying is that much of it probably isn't in, in the sense that we might find convenient.
1: Yeah. I mean, mostly in in the sense that it's, it's mixed, right? So if you control, if, if the, if, let's say you have a pragmatic system, and it's and it's coupled to the environment in a way that accomplishes some relatively sophisticated and complex goal. Um, um, It's going to co vary with many, many variables. Um, And if you control, let's say co varies with 10 different variables that one can conceive, if you control nine of them, then you'll be able to decode the 10th. Yes. But, um, but in natural behavior, that's usually not the case. Uh, the 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 things actually all co-vary. They're not actually constant. The other variables are not constant. And so, you know, when we when we look at this, um, when we record in the brain, we very often find very nice correlations between neural activity and some externally definable quantity. Um, sometimes very, very external, like physically, like a physical variable like movement, but sometimes there's a conceptual variable like let's say, the value, the reward value of performing a certain movement. But the fact is these things are all mixed up and often in ways that are hard to um, hard to make sense. Um, and, I, and I think one of, one of the reasons, again, that it's hard to make sense of is, is, is we start with a model that is incorrect, that we, we think that the brain is, you know, is composed of modules that are sort of sending coded messages to each other. Uh, and if we could just decode them, we would understand it. But that's not really what's going on at all. Again, like in, in that escape circuit, it's not coded messages. It's, 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 um, you know, it's interactions. You know, I, you know, I sometimes joke that we, we know exactly what every neuron encodes, you know, it, what every action potential encodes. It encodes the, the in synaptic input to the next neuron, right? Um, the problem, of course, is that there's millions of those next neurons. They're all linked together in a in a recurrent network. And so it, you know, it's not a very useful thing to say after after that. But I think if we have models of first of all, what the system is really doing, what what task it's really accomplishing, um, then we can start, you know, making experiments that say, well, why should this thing be mixed up in this way? Um and it turns out that often it is, you know. And this is, I, I think, what I get excited about is if, if, if we can develop a model that, let's say, says, well. Uh, so I'll give you an example from from our work where we look at the sensory motor control of reaching movements in the context of making decisions, right? And we see things, for example, that um, co-vary with the direction of a movement that a monkey is about to make, but it also co-varies with the reward that the monkey is likely to receive for performing that movement, but only when there's a decision to be made, right? So in in the part of the region that I'm talking about here, premotor cortex, you have neural activity that co-varies and predicts the movement that an animal will make. And in the case of a situation where he's making a decision between two two different movements, it co-varies with the reward associated, the relative reward of a movement. So cells that prefer this movement will be um, more strongly active if that movement is more rewarded than another. And so you could say it encodes movement direction and encodes reward size, right? But if you have only a single target, then these very same cells completely don't encode the reward. So the monkey, of course, still cares about whether he receives one drop of juice or three drops of juice, but the neurons no longer report it. Uh, they don't co- correlate. They don't encode that variable. And why is that? Well, because I don't think they're ever really encoding variables. I what I think is that they are um, implementing a system that uh, that implements a competition essentially between different actions. And that competition is biased by all the things that that would make you want to go one way versus another, including reward. Um, and but because that comp and when that competition exists, you're going to see that biasing. But when there's a single target, there's no competition. And so you just go to that target. And so the, the encoding now of reward is gone. And, you know, it's not, it's not mysterious in any way once you describe it that way, right? It's, it's kind of like obvious. Well, sure, it's, it's going to co-vary with these variables because what it's doing is the pragmatic thing, right? Which is of all the places I could go, my arm, I could move my arm, which is the place that I want to move my arm, and that's going to depend on reward, effort, you know, what's available, et cetera. Um, and again, it's not—it's not representing. It's—it's it's doing right. It's—it's—it's mm-hmm. it's, it's not trying to describe the movement to somebody. It's just trying to send this in, input to the next neurons down the line, such that the arm happens to go in that good
0: direction, in the best direction. Let's um, yeah, using this behavioral example from monkeys um, I want to talk about so so the way that many people talk about the brain that many people naturally think about the brain is we sort of um, you know completely parse it into these different functional segments you've got some circuits that are sensory and they give us sensations and then some circuits after that you know they Grab that information from the sensory neurons and then they do perception. They create our perceptions. And then our perceptions go on to other circuits and cognition happens. And eventually we make a decision. And then those cognitive circuits hand it off to the motor neurons, and then a behavior is executed. This sort of uh you know, serial model of very functionally distinct types of circuits, you know, one after the other, doing these different types of operations. And I think what you're saying is that's that's a poor way to think about it. So can you talk about that a little bit more, and maybe maybe reiterate the uh, the monkey reaching experiments you we were talking about?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's more general than than those experiments. There's there's yes, you're right, and that's how people very often approach the problem, and it's and it's a traditional way of approaching the problem. And uh, and I've I've often wondered why. Where, where does that idea actually come from? I mean, you know, if 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 we were being we you know, we, we usually like to cite people when we, when, we say, when we start with some ideas, but who do we cite for that one? I don't, uh, and, I, and I actually think this is um, very pre-scientific, fundamentally, that, you know, back when people first started thinking about the mind and the soul, right, they, it was essentially assumed that they're separate, that there is a, there is a mind that's separate from the body. Right, and if if you believe that, which pretty much everyone did, um, you know, at least among the Greeks like Plato and Aristotle, um, then you're forced to consider how that mind uh, interacts with the world. It needs an interface. It needs a way for the world uh, to learn about the world, and that's what perception is. It presents the world to the mind, but also has to um, exert its will, um, preferably free will onto the world through action right and so the very concepts of perception and action and 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 intention etc were were sort of developed in, in our thinking at a time when where everyone was essentially a dualist and there was no problem being a dualist right and it was really a very long time until the concept of this non-physical mind was eventually abandoned by most not by everyone um but at that point, it was already kind of too late, right? What happened is these, these concepts of a perceptual system and an action system that plays out the wishes, those were retained, and the non-physical mind was just replaced with a physical thing, which, which people said, you know what? We can replace the mind with something like a computer, Right? which implements very sophisticated behavior if you give it the right inputs and produces the right outputs. We can just plug it right in there and replace this thing because this concept of a non-physical mind was very uncomfortable in, 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 you know, in light of physics and science, et cetera. It was not compatible with the laws of physics, et cetera. So it was problematic for psychology. But because they could just replace it with this cognition module, um, it solved the problem, Right. But the problem but the problem it didn't solve is those interfaces that I think we you know were so ingrained in even the way we talk about behavior. we describe something to each other. It's so ingrained in our way of thinking that it was impossible to let it go, right. And so now we have not only the conceptual boundaries, but they're um, they specializations. I mean, different people study different different systems. you know, people who there are people who study perception who don't worry about the cognitive issues. And there are people who study motor control who don't worry about the perceptual issues, et cetera. Um, and there are people who study cognition who don't worry about, you know, h- how the input is con- constructed. They just sort of as- they begin with the assumption that I'm going to receive this really nice model of the world. And now my job is to explain how the brain does in- interesting cognitive things with that model of the world. Um, but, you know, if you look at people who study... Um, sensory motor control in animals, you know, ocular motor control, or or you know, swimming behavior. Not, there's none of that there, right? There's no there's no real separation. You still talk about sensors and effectors. You still talk about a kind of a specialization for certain kinds of um, you know activity patterns um, versus others. You know, there's information that about the world which is ambiguous as to what you're going to do in the world, but in the end you can only do one or two things at, at at once. And so in the end, it sort of has to change into a more sort of motor related format, but, but you don't have to make, you don't have to draw those borders. And I think what happened in psychology is because psychology became a science at a time that those borders were already pretty much set in stone in, in, in our language of even the, the, the terminology that we use um, that it, it started from that point, and it's very difficult to snap out of it. And this is one of the things that that I think Gibson did, and Bill Powers and and Piaget and many others uh, suggested we need to we need to get rid of that baggage, and start thinking about it as 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 a system, and then we can talk about how different parts of the system do different things. Because you can still talk about things that are, you know, m- you know, things that are sent closed loop sensory motor control in the here and now versus things that are not things that are more um you know detached uh, again from from the moment to moment. So I think a lot a number of people have been saying that for a long time. Um, and it's you know it's penetrated a little bit here and there in the field, but I, I still think that most people come into the field with such a strong preconceived notion that, Oh, I'm going, you know, this mystery of perception is so fascinating. That's what I'm going to study. I can tell you when I got into this, right? I came in from a computer science background. So I was completely thinking in this way, right? And I was thinking to myself when I when I went to graduate school and I I went to the the group of Steve Grossberg, who was a computational modeler. Um and I was thinking I'm going to address the attention problem. Uh, the, sorry, the the perception problem because it's just so interesting, right? Um, but one of the things that I learned from my my professors there um, is, again, about Gibson and ecological psychology. And it was Ennio uh, Mingola and Daniel Bullock that really impo- exposed me to these ideas. And I-, I thought, wow, there's another way of thinking about it. You don't have to think about, oh, I'm going to study how perception works and how it produces that internal model of the world. I can talk about sensory motor control and, and the whole problem of, of behavior. Um, because there is an alternative way of thinking about it, which doesn't require drawing these borders and then looking for these, these modules. Um, and, and I think, again, lots of people have said, said this. A lot of people continue to say it. Uh, but I still think that there is this prevalent notion out there that a lot of people just assume it, it just is the case, and, and they don't uh, encounter ideas that, that say otherwise.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it is, and it is very natural to think that way. It is. Um, yeah. Although of course, fun, you know, funny enough, if you think about it, um, you know, when do we have perceptions in the absence of cognition or vice versa?
1: Yeah. It's well, that's obvious, one place where people have, have noted very much, you know, that, that the border between those two is pretty blurry and, um, and, and likewise in motor control. You know, if you look at decision making, if you if if you look at studies of decision making, uh, very often, if you study decisions about action, it's all right in the same regions that control the actions, right? Um, in in monkeys or mice, et cetera. I mean, if you study decisions that are very abstract, then it's it's rather different, right? I mean, there's that's not the same type of thing. But if you study decisions about actual activity, they seem to emerge within what one would normally have called the motor system or, you know, or at least the sensory motor system. Um, And, and not in some purely cognitive thing, right? It's very, the the borders between these uh, terms in the brain are extremely blurry. Um, And I agree, it's very natural to think that way, but I think we need to, uh, I think we need to just confront the fact that as soon as you look at the brain, it just, That just ain't so. Um, You know, I mean, uh, even in functional imaging studies where there's really very little action because otherwise you'll have artifacts and you won't be able to do your experiment. um, Even in those studies, you see all these things mixed up in in very confusing ways that don't, that just don't obey the traditional psychological distinctions. But again, I, I would say, you know, if these ideas... Are so old um, you know what's the chance that they you know that the Greeks had it right back then I mean they were brilliant, but they, they didn't have the knowledge that we we have now that we can use to come up with better terminologies
0: what um so what circuits in the brain performing what kinds of functions do you think are are going to be the the most decodable. So in this uh, meaning that, you know, what what circuits in the brain performing what kind of functions uh, have to perform those functions specifically so that they can be easily decoded by other circuits in the brain. Where what types of behaviors do you think these are going to be tied to what types of circuits in the brain do you would, would you expect us to be able to find things that are supposed to be decoded so to speak.
1: Uh well, I First, I would say maybe none, right? Because there's, there's no reason for the brain to decode itself, right? The, the brain, in the end, its job is to get behavior, get on with the task of behavior, right? There is no there, It's not necessarily true that one part of the brain has to be able to decode another. Um, now, so it has to deal with behavior. But I do think that there are some aspects of behavior which have to be, um, at least at the behavioral level, decodable. Um, and, and language would be the most extreme example of that, right? So, so, um, language always, language is a very, uh, important and and interesting case for a number of reasons. Um, but, but one, I think a mistake that's often made in my opinion, a mistake is that we use the question of language to determine how we think about everything the brain does. And so language involves, you know, symbolic communication and certain kinds of rules and certain, and very, very detached from sensory motor. Uh, And so, you know, the idea of passing messages between you and me is then absorbed into the idea of how the brain works, where, you know, the amygdala sends coded messages to the striatum or something, you know, the, the, um, I don't think one should take that as whatever is appropriate for explaining language may not be appropriate for explaining the rest of the brain. Um, and it shouldn't be the basis of our uh, theories. And I say I say all this because it was, right? Our language was one of the reasons why people uh, abandoned uh, a lot of the ideas of behaviorists and ethologists and went with a more representation-heavy Um, architectures, uh, like, uh, like in cognitive science, and it was was because people wanted to explain language. Um, But the other thing I want to say about language is that, um, that I don't think actually language itself is really fundamentally a message passing or an information passing system. Hmm. Um, I actually think language is yet another extension of control just that happens to pass through other creatures, right? So, so I can control my my physiological state with internal uh, variables and internal processes. I can control my my state in the environment by moving around in that environment and acting in it, and pushing on objects, and taking advantage of the reliable consequences of performing one action versus another. Um, you know, laws of like if I move forward, things in front become reachable. That's that's an obvious thing. But there's also laws of interaction, right? Um, If, if I'm a helpless baby, um, I can't control my state, I can't do anything about my state, but but I have a parent there in the next room or next next to me, who will take care of stuff for me as, as long as I, you know, it, utter the correct sound, and, and frankly, in the beginning, it doesn't have to even be correct. It could just be any sound. The parent will come and figure out what's wrong and figure out what to do for me, and then eventually, I can um, maybe make a more specific sound to indicate one need versus another need, and the parent will go and happily, you know, fulfill that need and do whatever it takes. And 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 again, the nice thing about parents is that they're really quite sophisticated but incredibly easy to control if you're their baby right you can the baby can make the parent do anything right and, and i know cuz i have a son and i've been in his control for a long time now um so so the thing is that's kind of a a kind of communication right and and the parent is gradually um gradually shapes the utterances of the baby to um to fine tune that interaction and that control that the baby has again, happily. Right. Um, but it also extends in, 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 other situations, you know, a, um, a animal can make a threatening gesture to another animal. And if that threatening gesture makes that other animal back off, great. Then you've exerted control without having to engage in fighting and, and injuring yourself. You've exerted control over your, your rival uh, and you accomplished what you wanted, which is let's say uh, staying as the alpha male, or or getting some piece of food that somebody else was trying to get from you. And so you you make gestures or you make utterances to control others. Now, um, in humans, that just explodes in complexity, right? And, and so human societies, you know, I and mean, fr- frankly, primates too. Um, you know, even monkeys have pretty sophisticated. Uh, interactions, a lot of gestures, but also utterances that are essentially not about, you know, decoding intentions, it's about persuading the others, it's controlling the others, and thereby, my access to things like food, um, you know, mates, the nice, nice comfy perch or whatever. Um, And I think that's the foundation of communication and then language really. And then again, we can sort of think about the detachment within that, right? So so I, I'm controlling my con-specifics by making various utterances, but as my control over those con-specifics opens, and, and here again, umwelt, right? The idea that once you have these kinds of interactions and they respond in predictable ways to me and vice versa, now it creates a whole new domain, a whole new like aspect of the niche that can explode in complexity and everybody can discover more and more sophisticated ways to deal with that new um, new environment, kind of new aspect of the environment. And I think what happened in, in human society is that that's what we um, that's what we expel excelled in so much. you know we're, we're like we're like the hummingbirds of language, right? We're just incredibly good at it, so much better than any other animals um, just like hummingbirds are amazing at flying, right? And so we've we've taken that to new levels, and such levels of com- complexity that that we can do things that are really very far detached from from you know simple interactions. You know, we can have long range plans. We can deposit money in a bank to buy food, you know, twenty years from now, um, and and control my state, etc. And so, I, I think a lot of it a lot of it comes with that social structure and tied into language and. And there, I think, so coming back very roundabout way to your question about decodable, um, there's an example where you actually want to make the utterances decodable by the listener, et cetera. And there, it actually becomes very important that things are explicit and abstract and detached. Um, Inside the brain, maybe also, I mean, you mentioned earlier the, the idea of generalization. I think that's an example where, um, you know, context dependence gets you into trouble if you want to generalize. So, um, so the, this idea of separating out from this pragmatic mixture may be relevant there. I'm not sure. I'm not sure, though, decodable. I mean, does does any part of the brain? Uh, how is it in the business of decoding another? Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. There's good examples of that
0: so you know you, you mentioned earlier how how seductive the the question or the problem of perception is because i mean it's just it's so it's it's such an intrinsic part of our our lives and it's so naturally interesting you know why is it that we perceive things why is it that we have conscious perceptions at all and so when i think about you know the question what is perception where do they come from? You know, an answer that you commonly hear to that is some version of, well, perceptions are your brain's representations of the external world per se. With some level of fidelity, you're representing what's actually in the outside world. So uh, my question for you is simply, what is perception? Um, but I'll also add uh, the additional question. Do you, do you even think that's a good question to ask?
1: Uh, yeah, I do actually think it's a good question to ask. Um, and I think the answer that I like is kind of, um, based on Milner and Goodale's work on the two visual streams, which I think actually generalizes to many sensory, uh, systems. Um, and so what they point out is that, well, actually it was Ungerleit and Mishkin that pointed out the anatomical separation between a dorsal visual system, which is sensitive to space around you and a ventral visual system, which is sensitive to object identity. Um, and not so much the space around you. What Milner and Goodale suggested is that the dorsal system, the spatial system is really about sensory motor control. It's the front end to the circuits that make you move around in space and reach things and run around uh, and control your action, where the ventral system is more about what we normally think of perception, which is being sort of being uh, aware, identifying things, classifying them—you know. Um, so, for example, um, you can hide under something without having any idea of what it is. You can grasp all kinds of objects, whether or not you know that they're edible or not, mm-hmm. right? Um, so, you're, and that's dorsal. Sort of that's dorsal system processing. You, you're, you know. You can interact, you can perceive the affordances and take advantage of them uh, in all kinds of sophisticated ways without actual knowledge of what the thing is that you're grabbing. Um, but so for example, a, a you know a, a heavy object can be used on all kinds of ways to hammer a nail, to throw at an intruder. To hold down pieces of paper flying around on my desk, et cetera. It has affordances and whatever, but it also has identity that specifically, more specifically, says something about it. Like, like the, the better example is really a fruit, right? There's all kinds of spherical objects you can grasp, but some of them are edible, right? And so you wanna you wanna grasp them when you're hungry uh, and and you want to then bring them to your mouth and eat them, right? And the, the proposal is that the ventral stream is identifying the identity of objects in order to help you decide about what you want to do in the world around you and which things you want to bother grabbing. You know, there might be all kinds of spheres around in your world, but one of them happens to be an apple. If you can identify which one is an apple, that's the one you want to orient to. And so that I think is – and and in fact, in in many disorders, people can, can have – one or the other system damaged, so they're unable to um, identify what the object is, but they can still interact with it or vice versa. Um, and so I think what you mentioned as as sort of what we think about perception is more this ventral stream stuff that we are we are um, very concerned with the identity of objects, uh, and it's because we're going to use that information to make a sort of a high level control um, uh, policy of do I want to approach this thing or reach for it or whatever? Uh, it's it's whereas the other system is more like here's all the possible things you could do right now. Here's a whole bunch of things you could re- grasp. Here's a whole bunch of places you could walk. Here's some support surfaces. Some things you can hide under. You know here's the, op- the the opportunities for you sort of large menu of opportunities. But the brain can only do a couple things at once. So in the end, it has to kind of prioritize. And so this ventral stream. Um processing helps you do that and then select out which of the things is more appetizing or whatever. And I, so I think, and that's one of the uh, systems that really takes off in primates, that ventral stream is is pretty, pretty small in, in, um, you know, rodents and tree shrews and other sort of our relatively nearby uh, cousins. Um it's not It's not as elaborate as it is in primates. It's extremely elaborate in primates, in part, I think, because primates sort of, at least along our lineage, became very visually uh, driven animals. Vision became extremely important. And their lifestyle was one in which you don't uh, approach things, sniff them, taste them. You look at them from one tree away, and then you decide whether you want to go bother, you know, going to that other tree and eat those fruit over there. Um, so I think a lot of our sophisticated visual system um, uh, is still doing all the sensory motor stuff, but then there's this other system which is becoming, and and you can already see how that's a bit more symbolic, a bit more probably context independent. And so you, you have all kinds of, um, you know, you have all kinds of processing along that system, which is all about classification and drawing boundaries between, uh, you know, there can be lots of apples in a whole continuum of of sort of nutritiousness, some are rotten, some are perfectly ripe, you need to draw a border because you need to make a decision. Are you going to eat it or are you are not going to eat it? And so you wanna, you wanna classify them into this is good, this is not good, uh, et cetera. And so classification and sort of breaking up the world into categories is sort of the that part of the visual system, again, because it has to do things like prioritize actions. And, and decide which of many affordances you want to uh, take part in. And, and I think a lot of that is what, we, um, what we're what we more sort of consciously aware of. Whatever, whatever conscious awareness is, it seems to be more focused on that kind of vision.
0: What was yeah. that text you mentioned earlier, Perception, the Control of Behavior?
1: That was Bill Powers from 1973, I think, or 71, early 70s. Um, and that's called perceptual control theory. And there's essentially a a, a kind of a um, a tradition um, of people who think this way. And I have a, I have a lot in common with them with with that. Again, uh, he's not the only one who, who has said this. He he said it particularly uh, nicely, I think. Uh, but Piaget, Jean Piaget, who was a very influential psychologist in the mid twentieth century, he. Um, he said something like this about cognition as well. He talked about child development and suggesting that um, the child first figures out how to move around and flop around and control his arms and et cetera. Only later does he construct actual knowledge of the world that he's interacting with on that foundation. And and the foundation is kind of necessary to have cognition. And he was very much a cognitive psychologist, but he was a cognitive psychologist who uh, focused very much on really the pragmatic aspects and, and kind of the control aspects as well. Uh, but again, others have said this too, um, um, you know, Newell, uh, no, not Newell, I'm um, blocking um, on the name, but uh, but John Dewey said this in, in the 19th century. Um, and
0: again, I wouldn't be surprised if Democritus said it in 580 BC. <laughs> so why um... – you know, on the subject of conscious perception. And if, and if we think of perception in, in the way that, that you've been talking about as, as, you know, about being about the control of behavior, do you, do you have a, a viewpoint on why there needs to be conscious perception at all? Why something like that would have evolved? Why not just have it all be, is it possible for it to have been a, a completely sort of automatic, if very complex, system why is there such a thing as conscious perception can you speculate, I, speculate on that for us
1: i gotta say i have no idea i gotta say that is a that is a that is a tough question and and I'll, very often i come back to it myself i you know it's like okay well well and good you know sensory more control whatever but why is there this conscious aspect to it i really don't know um and there are some promising ideas um I, I think there are there are promising ideas out there, but I, I find them all somewhat unsatisfying in the end. And I'm wondering whether it's because um because we're just not phrasing it properly. You know, there's a lot of questions that that seem completely inaccessible and then suddenly uh, they're not an issue. Um, you know, temperature is is a sort of a classic example. What is heat, right? And and it was just people just didn't have the right concepts to to phrase that question correctly, and until it became a non-question, um, what is life is another one, classic one, right? Why are things some things alive and other things inanimate? And and people had been wondering about what that Alain vital is for for centuries, and then a bunch of chemists essentially kind of worked around the problem, and then there was not a problem anymore. Uh, for me, the problem of meaning was one of these. I, I thought to myself when I w- went to grad school: is is the great mystery is how is meaning attached to to symbols? Um, and you know, and I think attacking that head on would take hundreds of years. But you know, I, I then I read Gibson and I realized, you know, what that's not the problem at all. It's actually that's that's because the problem is f- phrased backwards. Um, that in fact it's it's not how meaning gets attached to symbols it's how symbols emerge in in pragmatic systems um now i don't know what the answer to the question of consciousness is um and i don't think anybody knows um but i i suspect it might be one of those those types of questions where we're 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 you know greeks contemplating galaxies you know we don't we just don't have the pieces to to um Frame it correctly, and I'm wondering whether it has something to do with, again, with control systems. Um, you know, the idea of being inside versus outside a control system is obviously different. That's that's like the subjective versus objective perspective. Um, so there's some something there. There's some aspect of monitoring. I mean, there's a number of people asking questions like, okay. Yes. Okay. There's consciousness. Why are we conscious of these things, but not these other things? Why is it like, for example, ventral stream stuff seems to be within our consciousness more, whereas dorsal stuff is not? Why? I don't know. I think those are good questions to ask. But uh, you know, it's it's funny because you know I've I've always been interested in this, and I've you know on and off read read what other people say about it. And in the end, I'm just never satisfied, and it's a bit of a cop out admittedly, but I kind of feel like you know maybe we should think about heat and on life and and work at it and, and maybe we'll realize it's it's not a problem. it's it's not such a problem as we thought if we if we phrase the question correctly. but I don't know I, I don't know I gotta I gotta say it's it's a uh, it's a uh, quite a deep mystery and a tough one.
0: Well, Paul, uh, this has been a fascinating, fascinating conversation so far. Is there anything else you want to say or reiterate to maybe leave people with a distilled version of, of what we've been talking about and and how you think about the brain?
1: Um, well, I, I don't know. I mean, I guess my, my, one of my frustrations is that, um, that I find that there's a certain mainstream of thinking that is not, um, not knowledgeable enough about alternative ways of thinking Um, simply because um, once you're in the mainstream, not only do you, you're not forced to go out of it because you're comfortable in it. You know, you can do your work, publish your papers and get funded. Uh, But also you've got a lot to keep up with because everybody's doing these things and everybody's asking the same questions and, 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 you know, you know, they want to know what your next input to those questions is. And, and, and so I think that happens a lot. Um, but I also, I, I'm frustrated by, by having seen how much there is that's out of the mainstream, you know, like, like Gibson's work, like Powers, like, you know, like many of these people I, I've, I've mentioned, um, that people are not aware of it, because they don't go out of their comfort zone. Uh, and they just, you know, they read what other people read. And 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 they accept the questions that have been handed down to them by you know their supervisors and their psych one hundred and one class, um, and they just don't realize that there's all these alternative ways of thinking out there, um, you know that that have actually been around for a while, slogging away in unseen corners. You know, one of the things that I emphasize is evolution is important. You know, there's a huge world of people studying this stuff, and and I've always been interested in, it, but I only really delved into it deeply recently, and I'm amazed that how my my view of everything has changed once I got exposed to this. and And so I would say, you know, um, if you're in the mainstream, you should be worried that you're missing something, that you should um, go read what everybody isn't reading, um, and see what the alternatives are, even if even if mo- many of them are going to be, you know, kind of wacky or wrong-headed there's some gems out there that that people are just not, not aware of. Uh, You know, I, I was exposed to some of these things um, because of the particular path I took. Uh, If I hadn't, I would, I would not know, know this stuff. I wouldn't know where to start. Um, So again, I I think it's always good to uh, look outside the comfort zone. And, you know, again, like I said, I, I get frustrated how, how people don't do that, how they just say, Mm -hmm. all right, well, this is what everybody else is doing. So that's.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. I think, I think it's great advice. Read outside your comfort zone. Um, I try to read as many things by dead people as I can, because sometimes ideas kind of get lost and forgotten about. Yes, uh... that's right. That's right.
1: Yeah. I actually also, also I always thought it would be good to give a assignment to students where they, they have to write a report and they have to cite from, um, from at least, you know, eight different decades, right? (laughs) Um, and and they have to they have to sample across time in, in a more broad way because because you've once once you try it you find that it's there and, and I I think tell me to tell you the truth I think you and others who do these kinds of um, you know podcasts or sort of you know interviews you're sort of well poised actually to get a broad broad picture because you're you're sort of it's your job to to try all these to sample these things in enough depth to have the conversation, but at, at the same time without getting so narrowly caught in one particular viewpoint that you're stuck there, right? So, you know, you, you should, you and others who do these kinds of um, podcasts
0: should all, you know, do it for, you know, 20 years and then write a nice book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll keep that in mind. But but it is true. Yeah, yeah. I, I get a, I get a wide sample of things. And yeah, and I, and I often seek people out who are a little bit outside the mainstream or that who I, I don't you know i just legitimately don't complete i don't understand what they're saying and, and i want to know more not because i already think i know the answers of what they're going to say
1: mm-hmm. well good and i look forward to your book
0: <laughs> <laughs> all right well thanks again paul for your time this is fascinating and um and i look forward to talking to you again in the future all right thanks again for inviting me.